This is the Shift Podcast. Today on the Shift Daily Podcast, scientists are still searching for ways for humans to live on Mars. But should we be changing other planets around to be convenient for us? Greg Fish tells us about the complicated practice of terraforming, the idea about it, and how we should let it go. Also, it's getting easy to travel in Canada, but are you ready to maybe take a cruise? Details on all things travel, plus some specifics that are really cool with Claire Newell. Travel is back, and she shares her experiences on a cruise so she can speak to the experience herself, how great it was, what wasn't awesome, and what makes it super easy for you. Has the travel industry made the post-COVID adjustments that you need to know, too? Plus, are you okay with horses, car insurance? Are you okay with Nike and foot tattoos? All of this and more on the Shift Daily Podcast. It is time for us to dig into the world of the weird things. Welcome to the world of weird things with Greg Fish. Fishy, how are you, buddy? How's it going? All is good here, man. All is really, really good. We, um, You've been working on some stuff. Before we get to this messing with the earth thing, um, you've been working on some other fiction writing, and I know that you've sort of teased at it before with me. I was wondering if you could share some stuff. Uh, speaking of, I'm curious, by the way, how the computer scientist left brain, who loves weird things, creates fiction out of his right side of his brain. So... Help me understand this. Well, it's actually pretty easy because so what I actually do involves a lot of design. So at this point, a lot of the a lot of the work that I'm doing is, is more on the creative side and figuring out how things are going to work and why they're going to work. And that starts leading to questions. So if you're reading a lot of weird science like I am and you're involved in a lot of uh, engineering that really is trying to kind of push the envelope in terms of what certain technologies can do, you start wondering, well, what happens when you actually put them together and, and what does it actually look like and how does it actually work? Um, which is actually also a challenge because then, you know, a lot of engineers try to write science fiction and then we end up writing a lot of things that are very technical and really focus on the world, building the world is cool, but then not a lot of things happen. So I really kind of wanted to make it an exercise in myself and try and, you know, really get into the minds of the people who would be living in this kind of environment uh, that would be set up. And, and really it, it does have something to do with what we're going to talk about now, because um, basically what I wanted to talk about is this whole idea of terraforming, that we can engineer our planet and we can engineer other planets to be like ours. Like we can go to Mars and we can turn Mars into Earth and then we can go to Venus and we can turn Venus into a third Earth and then we can go to other other stars and, and turn other planets into something that's very similar to our own. And it's a thing that just isn't really going to happen for reasons we will discuss in depth. But it really means that as we discussed a few times in the past, humans are going to have to adapt to if we're going to live in space, if we're going to explore other planets, we're going to have to adapt pretty radically and humanity is going to have to make some major changes. So the question that I really kind of set out to try and figure out for myself is what will that look like? Because humans will still remain humans. There's going to be a lot of conflict. There's going to be a lot of friction. There's going to be a lot of really bizarre and interesting and dark things happening when 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 this is a reality so what does that look like what could that world resemble so that's that's really kind of one of the things that i have been working on so when do we get to learn more about it and and all that stuff you still got tons to do or 
Well, actually, believe it or not, I am publishing it chapter by chapter every Friday, free of charge. If you, I oh, can, yeah. I can, I'll, I'll send out a link on, yeah, on you, my Twitter. Oh, you can actually put it on, you put it right on the uh, shiftheads.ca on the Facebook group. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's, yep. it's, it's free. It's available. I've posted 13 chapters so far and it's just <laughs> going to be serialized every week. I love how you just said that with a question mark when you're the guy who wrote it. That's fun. Um, well, the, 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 you know, it, you're always off by one. It's like one of the most common errors in programming. You're always either one ahead or one behind. That's awesome. That's great. Anyway, you're an admin, by the way, on the uh, the shiftheads.ca page, so you can share those links on there as well, and that would be fantastic. Feel free to do that. You can learn more about this uh, wild world of uh, Greg Fish's brain, which I'm learning that the world of weird things is not really the world we live in. It's just the way Greg interprets the world. I think that's kind of how we need to... Uh, really just settle on it that that's fair that's fair i haven't really heard it put that way but it is very very fair and appropriate <laughs> i love it okay terraforming is a thing let's start with what is terraforming that has already come up as we shared that we were going to have you on to talk about this so let's start with the basics of terraforming i know you described it briefly there with your fiction stuff but what is terraforming are we talking about both us manipulating the earth to fit us and other planets and everything else. Let's start there. So technically, technically, yes. So terraforming the earth is technically, it's called geoengineering because it is on earth, but terraforming when applied to other planets is the idea that we can geoengineer other planets to be like earth or to change the environment however we want. And it's it there's not a specific thing like you know terraforming is not going to be this one technology that we deploy we're not going to like install um, a heater and air conditioning on a planet and we're just going to set the dials it, there's going to be multiple techniques they're going to depend on the planet they're going to depend on the environment but there's an idea that there's a suite of technologies that we can use to turn planets like Mars or like Venus into something that very much resembles Earth um, and the idea is really based partially on science fiction and partially um, with some people kind of looking at some calculations and, and putting up a little popular science here and there and saying, oh, yeah, you know, that kind of sounds plausible. And then it got shared a lot and got really famous. And now we have um, Elon Musk promising us that we're going to start terraforming Mars any minute now. And the reality, however, is that we really should not be messing with the Earth and messing with other planets is not going to work because of physics. So let's start with the Earth. There have been many, many ideas to change how the Earth's climate is going to work by creating artificial lakes, closing the Mediterranean Sea. There's been tons of projects to try and kind of change how the Earth's climate works. Um, and it, they all come with some really, really terrible side effects because planets are large, complicated systems and they have a certain equilibrium. And if you try to disturb that equilibrium, they're going to try and get back to that equilibrium the minute that you kind of mess up a little bit. And there's going to be all sorts of si unintended side effects or what you're doing. Some of them, you know what they're going to be. Others, you have no idea. And you have no idea how it's going to evolve down the line. So basically, it's like one of those things where if, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Or yeah, at, I get that. at least that's... Yeah, at least that, that's that's how it kind of comes with Earth. And then with other planets, it's it gets a little bit more complicated. We did a thing um, on Biosphere 2 
and yeah. um, the, the biosphere that was built so long ago. That was a 100% encapsulated, living it for two years experiment here on Earth about the ability to design and create and be self-sustaining inside this biosphere. In that biosphere, they had real problems. They had real problems with infestation and stuff got in that shouldn't got in, got in, and there was bugs on things that shouldn't have been there. Uh, carbon dioxide levels were high. They couldn't balance the oxygen and the carbon dioxide and all of the work of all the plants. There was so many things that went wrong with that experiment. How is it possible we could even imagine? And that was just a bubble. How is it we could imagine an entire planet and control all of it all the time? We can imagine it however we want, but it actually, you're right. This is a perfect encapsulation where if you try and make the environment of a planet something that it's not, then what's going to happen is the minute that your technology fails, if there's a tiny little flaw, if there's a tiny little oversight, it's going to be undermined and you're going to have a really, really tough time. So let's, for example, go to Mars for a second and say we're going to terraform Mars. And the idea is we we pump in a lot of greenhouse gases. We puff up Mars's atmosphere with all the carbon dioxide and all of the other gases that are kind of stuck inside of the planet. We're going to free them. We're going to pump them into the into the atmosphere. We're going to use mirrors to warm it up. We're going to create a magnetic field, so on and so forth. And then we're going to plant algae and that's going to create oxygen. And that's the whole that's kind of like the plan. But the problem is none of that is really going to work because if we go to Mars and we start releasing all of the carbon dioxide and all the other gases that are trapped inside of it, we can increase the atmosphere. The atmospheric pressure on Mars is six millibars. And for reference sake, Earth's pressure at sea level is a thousand millibars. The most that we can increase Mars's atmosphere is about 33 millibars, which is a little over half the pressure at which all the liquids in your body immediately boil. Oh. So so the best case scenario for terraforming Mars is that we create this extremely poisonous atmosphere in which your bodily fluids will instantly turn to vapor. Hmm. Sounds fun. Matt Damon, though, grew potatoes. We can do that. On Mars. We could do that. We can we can probably grow if we treat Martian soil. If we actually there was a there's a recent fascinating experience uh, experiment with lunar soil. Where you add a little moisture to lunar soil and put in plants, and they start growing in the lunar soil. They don't like it, but they do it, and they hmm. come out in weird shape, but they but they still grow. So it's possible that we could grow things in Martian soil in lunar soil. But to change the entire planet, that's just, it's not, we don't have the technology and the technology that we can conceive of, of doing for doing this is very touchy. And the minute that it fails in any way, shape or form, uh, we're completely screwed on that planet. Mm. So it, it, there's, there's so many things that have to go right to keep this artificial environment, just like with biosphere, the minute one thing goes wrong, the entire thing really collapses. So the thought might be for a future civilization, you know, 10, 20,000 years from now is, okay, yes, maybe we have the technology now, but is it worth it? And then on top of that, if we actually are at that place as a species, then what's probably happening is that we have used some sort of biomechanical implants. We've used genetic engineering. We've used um, very specialized technology to allow us to go very far, very quickly. And we don't need it because we've actually kind of already said we're going to come in we're going to live off the land 
We're going to just deal with space as it, as whatever it throws at us. And this is horribly impractical and it's going to backfire on us. So why even do it? Okay. Let's go backwards to the earth. The earth has this unbelievable, and this could be actually a belief system thing, right? I don't know. Maybe it is. But the mm-hmm. earth has this unbelievable method of adapting, right? Um, some things learned how to walk. Some things learned how to fly. Some things survived out of prehistoric times. And some things didn't. And the constant adaptation of the earth, genetically, all of the things. We would never be able to forecast how that happened on these other planets either. I mean, here, for example, speak to today. You know, the climate change conversation talks an awful lot about carbon, carbon in the atmosphere, all those things, temperature. Even in the Earth today, the Earth is still adapting to adjust for our, you know, reckless use of the Earth. The only problem is, is that we are using it at a faster pace than the Earth does adapt. The Earth has seen times with higher carbon dioxide than this. The Earth has seen times that have been colder and warmer and all those things because the climate is always changing. It's the tempo at which that's a problem here. Now, take that, translate it, say, to Mars. You still can't tell how that's going to adapt on another planet this way or that way and whether it's going to work so hard to create the balance that it's always created from whether there's meteors hitting the earth and there's ice ages to warming up and there's too much and then so on and so forth. So is that a fair look at that? That that could be a belief system thing, Greg. That could be a, at what point does mother nature's hand influence this? Well, I, I think when we, when we start saying things like mother's na- mother nature's hands i think that's kind of the the belief part of it but i don't think that it's um i don't think that it's strange or or bizarre to say that you know if you try to change a planet's environment very very quickly there will be very very sudden and severe adjustments as all the different gases and temperature and climate belts and jet streams and everything else tries to adjust to a new equilibrium it will be doing so very quickly and as a result, it's going to do it very destructively every time that, yes, Earth has seen colder times and warmer times, but they've happened over hundreds of thousands, if not millions of years, trying to do that in decades and centuries. Um, while the last time that the climate, that, that Earth warmed in a few thousand years by five degrees, we had a mass extension that's known as the Great Dying. So if you look at the Permian extension, it's actually a pretty good template for runaway uh, for runaway um, global warming and climate change. So so this is exactly what we're talking about. If you try to go to a planet and try and and turn it into another version of the Earth in a couple thousand years, then it's probably going to create an environmental disaster. And we can't really forecast all the other things that will happen because Let's also keep in mind that we don't know that much about these planets that we talk about casually turning into another Earth. Um, you, we're, we're still trying to explore Venus. We've only had a single spacecraft land on it for 40 minutes, and that was hmm. decades ago. We're only now going to send another probe to actually land on its surface. So we know very, very little. And the idea is we're going to put it in giant mirrors and we're going to freeze the atmosphere. And then we're going to create an artificial day with other mirrors. Okay, great. Your mirror gets hit by a comet 
or a big meteor. What now? You've invested, you know, hundreds of years worth of work into trying to change this this planet that desperately wants to go back to being hot and and doesn't actually have a day the way that we think of it. it Venus's day is longer than its year. The minute all of that is out of alignment, Venus is going to is going to start heating up again. So all of these efforts will be for naught. So again, you're going to cause a massive environmental disaster. Then you're going to try and make the best of it and shape the consequences into something that you want. But it's going to rely on technologies that if they fail for just a second, if you didn't account for anything, just like biosphere, something's going to get in, something's going to fail, a level of something's going to leak somewhere. It's just not something that's practical. And and the reason why I'm kind of bringing this up is that it, it's just so common to hear um, in the popular science community, in the space community, will people bring up terraforming? Um, and you and you really want to say, ah, maybe let's not. Maybe let's put uh, let's put that somewhere with some of these other impractical technologies, like surfing the ether from you know the early 20th century when we thought that space was filled with something called ether, and you can somehow use that ether to move around, or they could explain the physics of the universe like maybe maybe let's just consign it to the bin of like okay that was a cool idea until we learned more okay so i want to go hollywood with this so we can really bring it home for everybody's imagination because it is so far out there we need a little imagination to understand it the notion that humans carry is that if we build it it's going to go perfectly for us if you think of Jurassic Park, the movie, we all know the storyline of Jurassic Park. They, you know, cloned out the DNA. They created a dinosaur and then the dinosaur got out. So if, what if we went to Mars and we started to create things the way that we thought we would create things? Cause we've never done it before. And then instead of evolving into what we know as life today, something got cross wired and it devolves backwards into prehistoric times. That's the Hollywood look at it, but that really is. Those are the kinds of things that we have no idea, and it seems particularly naive, naive of us to think that we could do. Well, there is a particular piece of science fiction that kind of answered that that question, and it's it's well, it's technically it's a game, but there's a lot of like lore and fictional universes that goes with it. Warhammer Forty Thousand in that particular science fiction universe, Mars is terraformed, but the technology eventually fails over time as humanity slips into a dark age. And you end up with horribly mutated people who have now replaced most of their bodies with machinery just to survive. And a complete barren, dry desert, Mars went right back to how it was. But now it's also toxic, overbuilt, and populated by deformed cyborg humanoids that are constantly engaged in war against each other and everything else. So this is the perfect example of what you're saying. Yeah, and so that that's a great example. And then it goes back to basically it's found its equilibrium, right? It's gone back yeah. to its natural state. So then what about, we only have about 30 seconds here, Fishy, but what about then we talk about these space stations, right? We see in the movies these big orbs that rotate to create gravity in space, and they have these beautiful, and the Hollywood makes these beautiful gardens and people walking around in their white robes because we're all innocent and uh, and all of that. That would lead to believe that that also becomes extremely difficult because again, it's manufactured atmosphere that one thing goes wrong and take a while, guess what happens? Well, it is difficult, but that's actually more plausible. If you're creating a completely closed synthetic environment and you kind of have the right balance and you have the right backups and you have something on standby to constantly 
supply it or rescue people in, in case something goes wrong, that's a little bit more plausible because you, it, the, the environment is just so much smaller and the variables are much more controlled. But still, it's pretty dangerous. So I think that that's the other thing. The idea that we're ever going to be able to send this generation ship unsupervised for hundreds, if not thousands of years to another star, that's that's not happening. That's just yeah. asking for trouble. That's just asking for something to go horribly, horribly, horribly wrong. See earlier comments about Biosphere 2, right? Uh, we should get uh, that Mark Hunter conversation. We should dig that up because that was pretty fascinating uh, out of the... Uh, out of the ashes of this one. It's beautiful. Uh, TheWorldOfWeirdThings.com. Fishy's going to post some of his writings up on ShiftHeads.ca, the Facebook group, so you can read them. And this article can go up there, too. Thanks, bud. Thanks for being here. Always a pleasure. This is the Shift Podcast. The traveling thing is happening. That's for sure. My goodness. Uh, thank you very much for listening to The Shift. Claire Newell, TravelBestBets.com. Joins us. Claire, how are you? I'm good, Shane. Uh, you and I have both been traveling a lot. And man, are those lineups crazy at the moment. Oh, okay. <laughs> so let me tell you a quick story. Yep. So I went on, I was going to, I was debating whether I was going to come home uh, on Sunday night or Monday morning. And uh, so I went Sunday night. I was like, I'm just going to go. And see if I can squeeze on a flight that I it was already full. But I was uh. like, I'm going to just try to squeeze on a flight. And so I, I went there to the airport. The lineup was from security through the windy queue, out of the windy queue and down the hallway. <laughs> now, I uh, got to give credit to security in Ottawa. They were moving things really quick. They did a really great job. But the lineups were long. And if uh, that's nothing compared to what we've heard in Toronto, I spoke to a couple of friends who are pilots and such. And, you know, they're saying that the, the lineups in some places are absurd, really bad. Yes, yes, really bad. Like, but, you know, they've said that they've hired 400 new screening officers uh, that are now in various phases of training across the board. But the reality is, is they're not trained yet. And we're coming into a situation where kids are getting out of school soon and there's going to be even more demand and more people traveling. The other worry is, of course, it was big news last week that the U.S. won't require uh, a rapid antigen test done within one calendar day of flying. And that actually came into effect yesterday. So I know a lot of people who've been waiting to actually fly to the U.S. because they didn't want the hassle, the worry, you know, what if we test positive, plus the expense, especially if they're families. Like, you should see how busy it is at the moment with those, like, Disney bookings and things like that that typically people do over the summer months and just kind of been waiting. Hmm. Yeah. I I know I'm going down to the States for the first time in July, so this is good news for me. Um, But at the same time, you know, they're – it's it is funny because you know what was released today in Canada is they're um they're getting rid of the um the COVID tracking app they're shutting it down they're getting rid of the COVID tracking app but you still have to wear masks on airplanes so uh, it is wildly inconsistent and you can't assume that everything is done and taken care of no uh, especially when you're going to different places especially it's that inconsistency that I think people are just. They just really want it. Um, One of the other changes last week was that Canada is going to be making those random tests at the airports. So if you're flying back into Canada or you're coming to visit Canada, you may have been one in maybe 20 or one in 30 that was actually pulled aside and had to do uh, a test. Um, you, You didn't have to actually quarantine after that test. You just went about your business, but they are doing that. And 
it's that's now going to be at least pause until the end of June. You still have to use the ArriveCan app. You still have to provide proof of being fully vaccinated in order to enter the country. But what's interesting about this is that if you, of course, are unvaccinated and you're you're coming into Canada as a Canadian, because that's how you're allowed to come in, you still will have to do a test on day one and day eight. They're still going to test you at the airport, but they're talking about moving that off site. Could you imagine the, the logistical nightmare? Shane, that would be crazy. To move it off site. Yeah. How could you do that? You can't do that. Well, that's what they're saying. That's that's all of the, the what the press release is saying. So I wonder just how that's going to work. I have so many questions about that. Like, is it going to be off site from the airport completely? Is it going to be moved to parking lots? What's it going to be? Because every airport's going to be different. Um, so it, again, it's all these consistent inconsistencies that are really, really tough for people. But one thing that is not difficult for people to understand and that is consistent is that every single time that uh, restriction is eased, it's a huge step forward in the recovery of of travel, um, whether that's to the U.S. Um, now we're actually starting to see a lot of countries in uh, Europe. The most recent one I heard was Germany, that you don't even have to show your proof of COVID-19 status anymore. So you, mm-hmm. you don't even need to show that you're, you've been vaccinated. So they always are kind of a, a few months ahead of us over in Europe. And so it's interesting Mm -hmm. to watch how that's going to happen. And I know lots of people are saying Canada is so, um, so conservative, but at the end of the day, we're really middle ground chain. And you probably know this as well. I mean, Europe might be kind of leading and foraging the, the, the world in opening up and easing restrictions, but Canada is, is pretty much middle ground. I mean, we got rid of that requirement for an antigen test pre-flight well before the U S and, mm-hmm. you know, and we're nowhere near as conservative as places like parts of Asia or Australia or New Zealand. Yeah. Well, New Zealand. Oh, my. Yeah. Um, so <laughs> that's a that's a good one. So here's a question for you. Selfishly, Ireland. Mm-hmm. Um, what do I need to know for for going to Ireland? Nice. Anything? Yeah. You know what? You're just going to need your proof of vaccination, both going and coming back. And so arrive can oh, app. That's it. it pretty easy to get uh, to and from Ireland. You know, the thing that's um, been interesting to me is that I I actually took an Alaska cruise. I wanted to see what the cruise lines were doing on board firsthand from uh, safety, like health and safety and all Mm -hmm. of the protocols that they're taking. And obviously they're going over and above anything that's out there, even by CDC, which is really what their jurisdiction is. They, that's kind of what they, they follow those guidelines, but they, they're taking it to the nth degree. In fact, I was talking to people who were working on board the ships, Shane, and they, some Mm -hmm. of them, well, most most of them have been on board for, you know, a couple some six months, some two months, depending on their tenure and, and where they came from. They've not none of them so far, even the ones that have been on board for five or six months have been able to step off the ship. And the particular ship that I was on, it was called Celebrity Eclipse. It had to be um, pulled out of the water dry docked for one week to pull barnacles off because it was causing drag. Uh, and that was on May 22nd for one week. I went on board on May 29th. They were all just lifted out of the water too and lived on board that ship. And they wow. and I never saw anyone's face. They all wore N95 masks the entire time. And there were sanitizing stations everywhere. I could socially distance. The only place that we were asked to wear a mask was in the theater and in the casino. But even in the theater, I, of course, I wore my mask, but I would move like a couple of seats over, a couple of rows forward, just so that I could pretty much socially distance wherever I was sitting as well. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. So it's it's interesting to watch. But um, 
I just want to remind people because you're go however you're traveling, wherever you're going, you're not leaving COVID behind. And I have heard of people still getting it when they're traveling. So the the onus is on you as a traveler. Take the precautions you need to do. Wash your hands, use sanitizer, wear masks wherever you, you know, you can't socially distance along the way. That's just for your own protection. You know, you don't want to go on a vacation, spend all that good money and then be stuck in your hotel room because you're feeling sick. That's amazing. So thumbs up on cruising. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. I mean, it's definitely not going to be for everyone. Um, I had a fantastic time and it happens to be one of the the places where you can still find last minute deals. I actually live in Vancouver, so it's really easy to walk on and walk off without ever hitting an, an airport. I loved the fact that I just unpacked once and got to see lots of destinations. Scenery kind of blew me away. I, it was, it was, wasn't on my radar. And then I just, I had this opportunity. I thought I'm going to take advantage of it because there's a whole bunch, you know, inside cabins starting at $3.99 all season long. It goes up from there. But that's the night of a hotel, one night's hotel in Vancouver at yeah. the moment because the ships are exactly. in here and it's busy. But the fact I didn't really have to make a bed, didn't have to cook a meal for myself. It was a really unexpected, fantastic vacation for my husband and I. Um we did have a balcony cabin, which was a, a blessing for us. We spent lots of time just staring at the gorgeous scenery. So uh, for That's me, cool. I loved it. Um, I understand people may not be ready to, but from a health and safety protocol perspective, I had to uh, I had to do a COVID test within 48 hours of boarding. I had to use my Arrive Can app to show that I was um, fully vaccinated. Everyone on board the ship was fully vaccinated, including the crew, um, and I felt I felt safe. Hmm. Good for you. There you go. So yeah. there's uh, there's a one person's one person's experience yeah. on the cruises. There was some good prices you had on cruises, though. Do you want to touch on that? Oh, there's some unbelievable ones. Um, well, why don't I let you know about that uh, Alaska that I was talking about? Because all season, mm-hmm. almost all season long, there are seven night Alaska cruises sailing round trip from Vancouver, starting at three ninety nine. The taxes are almost the same if that gives you any indication you know like they're the taxes are around the just about 350 mark but a really Mm. great deal if you're trying to get july and august sailings pre-covid this would have been three times the price another one that i that's actually been like selling like a little hot cakes and for good reason is a 24 night cruise that's sailing from tokyo to mumbai and it visits nine countries. It's Japan, wow. Taiwan, China, Vietnam, Singapore, Thailand, Malaysia, Sri Lanka, and India. It comes with a $300 US onboard credit, a beverage package. So all your drinks, all your Wi-Fi, and pre- all your prepaid gratuities. It's not leaving till November 17th of next year, not this year, mm-hmm. but $2,000. Mm-hmm. Taxes of 367 That's a steal to see that many countries. Yeah, that's like 100 bucks a night. Um, and, and you're, you're going everywhere. Yeah. And you're not, like I said, you don't have to unpack to see nine different countries. You cool. don't have to cook or clean and it's awesome. <laughs> yeah. That's really cool. I love that. You also had this one price since we're talking about prices. Uh, Vegas is uh, in October was dirt cheap. Oh yeah. This happened to be out of Vancouver. So obviously a little bit more from other, other, um, gateways across the country but vegas october the 17th or 24th still lots of time to prep for that if you need to take vacation but the flight and three nights hotel 239 the taxes are almost the same 203 i always say if the taxes are almost the same you've hit the rock bottom you know package price and then of course you have to add the taxes because if that package was 10 grand 
or 239 like it is. The taxes don't change. Um, they're always the same, unfortunately. Wow. All right. Uh, good news. And Hawaii is on my list. So what am I looking at for Hawaii? Um, Hawaii. OK, so out of Vancouver again, a little more from across the country, um, various gateways. But so Maui has been super expensive uh, and I love the destination. I particularly like the area called Wailea. If you have been to Maui, you'll likely know it. But the airfare in seven nights in a four star condo in Wailea because Eating out is really expensive. So I think a quick stop to Costco and Safeway will save you a bundle. Mm -hmm. Do you agree, Shane? Foodland. (laughs) Yeah. I do. Go to Foodland, man. Yeah. So it's a four-star condo. And uh, between November the 16th and December the 10th, $15.99, including flight and seven nights in that condo, taxes of $3.93. But from the various gateways, those prices are on our website as well. Yeah, cool. It's uh, travelbestbets.com. So when we are going traveling on uh, all these things, there's been some really cool stuff that's happened. I mean, I the airports are busy. It's nice to see people are back, all of those things. I've got Ireland on the horizon for me. Um, Amazing. You know, the, the, yeah, I, and it's a short trip. It, it, I had to just shorten the trip just because of the, some of the things around life and work, but yeah. uh, still getting a chance to go, which we didn't get to do for 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 so incredibly long. Let's talk about a couple of these travel stories, Claire, that um, the WestJet flight was is a really cool story. It was on June 6th. It was sustainable aviation fuel. I don't know what that means, but they did okay, it. Yeah. So what's the story? Yeah. So one of the things that, um, you know, I've been in the, the travel industry for coming up 30 years next year, so a long time, and I've been reporting on all of these things that are coming in the future. And one of them is sustainable um, aviation fuel. But just this past Monday, June the 6th, WestJet operated its first sustainable aviation fuel flight. It was between LA and Calgary, and it was a collaboration. So they did it with Boeing and as well as IATA, which is the International Air Transport Authority, as well as other uh, airline industry peers. So collectively, they wanted to do this to show that they have this commitment to achieving net zero carbon emissions by 2050. Now, if that's a reality, that means like my kids who are early 20s now, when they're my age, they're going to see potentially net zero carbon emissions. So although it does seem and sound like it's really, really far off, things are happening as far as sustainable transport. And it's not just like the skies, seas as well. But um, locally where I live in BC, Harbor Air, they're expected to begin operating their first commercial electric aircraft this year, Um, and Mm -hmm. which I think is so cool. Hawaiian Airlines, if you are familiar with them, that they are partnering with a Boston-based company to explore electric aircraft. So, you know, the island hopping flights around Hawaii, they're called these sea gliders. If you Google them, if you're, uh, you know, an aviation geek like I am, you'll love it. They carry about 100 people. They haven't fully made the commitment, but they are, you know, it's a real possibility for, for moving forward. And if they do, it, they could be in operation by 2028. There's a company in the Caribbean called Cape Air. They actually are. They've put a, a letter of intent to purchase 75 all-electric Alice commuter aircraft. If you haven't um, seen these, they're called Aviation Alice, and they're the world's first fully electric aircraft. They fly at 250 knots. That's about 460 kilometers per hour. So that's on a single charge. They can go about 440 nautical miles. So that's why you're seeing it in places where you can do those small regionals. 
be, but I love this. Even cruise lines, some of them are making changes to go to liquefied natural gas. I know that um, Celebrity Beyond, which is already sailing, that was a, they're actually, that is already sailing using LNG. And of the 75 new cruise ships on order, 24 of them are going to run on LNG. So it's so great to hear all this. Yeah. Well, the hydrogen for me is uh, in those big ships where they don't, you know, they don't want to, um, yeah, you don't want to fill up every 10 minutes. Oh, could you imagine? Uh, that's expensive. <laughs> yeah. And then so, but it, things like hydrogen would be would be pretty fantastic to to, to get around. I don't know if you want that much hydrogen in a tank and on a on a ship, but, um, you know, the, these conversations are, are really starting to look cool. And the electric airplanes, of course, you know, the rules are that you have to have enough fuel for 30 extra minutes. So that's one of the big inhibiting factors, too, for safety. But these little uh, hops are, yeah. are pretty cool. I think Harbor Air is a great example of that because their flights are, for the most part, some of them are longer, but are so short and they're so convenient yeah. to be able to use them and get around. It's my favorite way to travel around the lower mainland onto the island. I, I mean, there's just totally agree. no denying that that is the coolest way to arrive in Victoria or Vancouver is to, you know, fly in low over the and just land right there in the harbor. So that's cool. Yeah, I like that. me too. Good I just, news. Yeah, I, I, I completely agree. And, you know, it's been kind of decades talking about it. But the fact that this is all starting to come to fruition, I'm I love love to hear these stories. So that's why um, that was such a good news story that that on that WestJet's also getting involved in this. One of the other um, Canadian companies that I thought I would share. Have you have you heard of G Adventures? No. Okay, so G Adventures. Um, it's started by a Canadian guy called Bruce Poontip. Super cool guy. But it's one of the largest small group adventure operators in the world, and. You know, they what I love about them is that they really support local communities. They feel and I agree that the best way to kind of spread wealth around the world, especially when you're traveling, is to, you know, maybe bypass one of those chain stores and actually support local, Mm -hmm. whether it's a restaurant, a shop, um, buying locally made goods, all of that type of thing. Anyway, um, they a good news story. They for July, there's thirteen hundred trips that they're going to be doing in 50 different countries. So it's the highest number of trips that they've been operating since the onset of the pandemic. And it also heralds a real welcome return to tourism for local communities in the countries that they visit. It's a good reminder, whether you're going with G Adventures or or going on your own, go local, spend your money with local cabs, local tour guides, local restaurants, local shops. Well, and not to be forgotten too, is that, um, you know, I'm going to fly on the Dreamliner to, to Dublin. And, um, I know that aviation, at least on paper aviation, oh, the worst, whatever emitter of da, 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 da. Um, but the aircraft today are, uh, in some cases, a hundred percent more, um, you know, efficient, efficient yeah. than they were before. Yeah. And, and they're, they're changing techniques on the way they load planes, the weight they put on planes, the way they fly the planes. I mean, that was WestJet's secret 20 years ago, why they were so successful, because they wouldn't fly full of water and full of fuel everywhere. That's, right. That's how they started to find their success. And so they, um, you know, not to be forgotten um, for any of the naysayers out there, it's important to say that the investment in some of these new aircraft, even the Max 8 that had a bad rap for so long, and now it's everyone's best friend because it is so incredibly efficient compared to the way things used to be. And so, I'm glad, you know, great things. I'm glad that they're all going efficient and um, sustainable, If you know, especially into the future. The reality is that whether there are naysayers or not, you're not going to stop flights traveling around the world, the cargo and trade around the world 
it happens that way and business yeah. happens that way. So wow. we are as passengers are, you know, we're only a small fraction of what, what, you know, those, those flights. So because the belly of those aircraft business class seats, so many people on board that are, are doing business, you can't just stop world trade. So, yeah. um, if we can I, take- well, I would add in that, uh, let's not forget and let's not be hypocritical mm-hmm. that, um, that we order things on prime air and uh, they come in a day and we don't get that convenience without a big jet bringing it. So let's, let's also not be hypocrites in, in ordering our, our little um, uh, uh, cell phone chargers. You know what I mean? I know. <laughs> For next day delivery. It's a good reminder though. You know, we can, we can go a little more green ourselves and, and make the difference on ourselves by the, the trips we, how we take them and what we buy and, you know, you know, packing, properly not like not leaving a footprint so there's things that we can each do as an individual so yeah it's- wonderful okay i love it it's uh travel best bets uh claire newell is here with us as always we will continue to update you there are tons of flights coming i was looking at WestJet's schedule even um there's like normally WestJet's calgary vancouver every hour i noticed this summer the toronto calgary looks like almost every hour there's some big changes there there's links of courses flying um, you know, and Flair has been given a bit more of a thumbs up for their their question mark. So there's an awful lot of really good opportunities coming up this summer. Yeah, so many. And and people, if you're if you've been, been nervous and you haven't traveled yet, uh, I encourage you. I've done it. Uh, Shane's done it. Just be cautious. Be careful. To yep. Take your. Be smart. But yeah, be smart. But go for it. Get those trips on the books. Um, do you? I was we, one quick one quick study um, or survey. It was done by MasterCard recently. And, you know, with food and gas and everything and travel, no different. It's super expensive at the moment, it, more expensive than it was uh, pre-pandemic. Anyone who's looked into it will know that. But it was interesting because MasterCard came out with their economic um, forward look. And in the next six months in North America, nine out of 10 people have traveled on the books, which is super promising and super exciting. And that could be anything from camping to a trip around the world, but you know that, you know, demand is high. And so I don't foresee um, lots of last minute deals like I used to pre pandemic. So if you see a deal, um, book it, but don't book it until you've got your passport in hand, because, you know, remember those passports are taking a really, really long time Um, and make sure you've got flexible terms and conditions. Yeah, so good, so important, and, and so much fun to be had, uh, that's for sure. And uh, and besides, if you're worried about traveling, I can tell you this, that as long as there are masks on the airplanes, as much as many people want them gone, everybody has to participate or else they land the airplane. So if you if it's one of the things that stresses you out and worries you a little bit, you're in good company because everyone has to do it. So don't worry. Yeah. Travelbestbets.com. Check it out. Thank you, Claire. Hey, thanks, Shane. This is the Shift Podcast. Time for Are You Okay With? Are you? Are you? Are you? Okay. 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 Are you okay with? We want to know if you are okay with these stories that we've put together. Let's get started. Are you okay with horses? Horses. Mm, Yep. Horses are pretty, yeah. Uh, Horses are pretty amazing animals. Um, they are like I, I have no interest in like being like owning a horse because it sounds mm. like way too much work and money. But yeah. they're really great in movies and uh, they're pretty amazing creatures. I saw the other day a TikTok of a horse that uh, when it saw the saddle, like the 
the rider was walking out with the saddle, the horse immediately dropped to the ground and pretended to be asleep and wouldn't get up until they walked away without the saddle. So they're like super dramatic animals too, apparently. They are very dramatic animals. In fact, I'm pretty sure I have a faker horse. I would like to be uh, an unhorse, a horse unowner myself right now. Oh, oh, really? (laughs) Yeah. Uh, no, it's just fine. It's just I would I we're done with the horse ownership part of the riding, and uh, I would like to uh, I would like to offload her. So I can't tell you the jokes I made though because they're not funny. If people, some will take them out of context. They were very yeah. funny. Okay, I'll tell you one joke. I was going to say we need to sell this horse before July because after July, that's when Sparkle Glue is really in demand. Glitter glue. Yeah, no, I got you. Sparkly, horse people yeah. get it. They think it's funny. They all laugh because that's the threat, right? When the horse misbehaves, it's like, you better listen or we're going to the glue factory. I've they say that. it all the time. I've heard that yeah. one. I grew up with a couple of uh, horse owners, uh, especially in high school, actually. A lot of people I knew rode horses in high school. Uh, and yeah, it just seemed like you spent how much to like? clean their hoofs like it's great yeah i get it though like the reward of owning a horse if you're really into it it must be incredible but if you know you bought a horse like i imagine like i think of like rich people where it's like daddy i want a pony and then they buy a pony and then like, they have no idea what they actually just did Mm-mm. well when you're that rich where where daddy can buy a pony you just hire people to do mm, all the work true. Yep. Right. And so that that's where the helpfulness comes in. And um, and that becomes a lot easier. So if you can afford to just pay somebody to do the work, that's fantastic. But it's that's not always the case. Well, OK, so horse is one thing. Horse races. Are you OK with horse races? Yeah, the horse races are incredible. I really love the chuck wagon races at the Stampede. Obviously, mm, the, it, it's terrible when they go south and there's crashes. But uh, anytime I've seen a chuck race, there hasn't been a crash, thankfully. Uh, but the way those animals are trained and what they can do and their, the relationship they have with the rider is incredible to watch. Yeah, well, you know, and there are two kinds of uh, horse people. There's the ones that care for them and love them, and then there's the kinds of horse races where they're all jacked up on dope, right? So most of the uh, horse community is amazing. You know, jerks will be jerks. So what about racing a horse? Like you, Ryan O'Donnell, against a horse who wins? (laughs) Like me running against a horse? Um, Okay, well, I'm a sprint runner, so... I imagine that within the first 10 seconds of the race, I will be firmly in last place because it's a horse. It's going to beat me every time. There's no question. Oh, oh and I don't want to be you. a, I don't want to be a naysayer, but I don't think. I can oh, do <laughs> look at you. You're all over it tonight. That was That's good. amazing. Here all week, ladies and gentlemen, getting ready for father's day this weekend. Oh, with like, the dad uh, jokes. Oh, right. Like, O'Donnell. Uh, well, it's a thing we it's a thing we promise. Uh, here's just one example of a uh oh, it's a thing we promise. Uh commas right. Uh, Put in the I comma. All right. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it's a punctuation o. Uh, it's a thing we promise. People against horses. Here's just one example of man v horse race from 2 years ago in CBS 5. The idea of a 
a runner or a horse on the trail. An idea that might sound a little crazy. It's pretty crazy. Which is why it's only fitting this whole thing started over some beers. This race actually got started by this man right here, Gerald Brownlow who was a county supervisor for Prescott for over 20 years. And he had a bar bet with Steve Rafters right here, which is an old cowboy, down on Whiskey Row. A bet back in 1983 that a runner could beat a horse. And it's been going ever since. It's a 50-mile course with an elevation gain of around 2,600 feet. It's a test of strength between man and horse, where every year man lost... All right. Uh, I would imagine every man would lose, like Ryan being man. Yeah. Uh, these races do still happen. One just happened in Wales, and for just the third time since 1980 when the whole thing started, a human has won. Ricky Lightfoot. That's, <laughs> That's just too good. Uh, told the BBC he had no idea whether he had won, as the people and animals take slightly different routes. So you're not really racing a horse. Uh I mean, if you thought the Great Dane would step on the Chihuahua, imagine the horse. After asking around, he discovered that he had come out on top against 1,000 runners and 50 horses with a time of 2 hours, 22 minutes, and 23 seconds. You know, if only he had been one second faster, it would have been way cooler. But no, way to go, Ricky. He took home 3,500 pounds after beating the first horse. Don't say beating the horse, Ryan. You can't say that. This is the, I'm taking, that's, okay, all right, beating the horse, right. but he did beat the uh, horse in a race. He took home 3,500 pounds after winning the race against the horse by more than okay. two minutes on the 22.5 mile course. The 37-year-old Cumbrian said winning was a, was pretty good, like, according to the BBC, the last time a human beat a horse in the race was in 2007, and the first time was in 2004. Good bragging rights, I would say. Uh, yeah, that's. The, the, can you imagine being at the bar? So what do you do mm -hmm. for a living? Oh, that doesn't matter. I beat a horse in a race. Sorry, I defeated a horse in a race. Thank you. <laughs> you horse beater, I never want to talk to you again. He's a hate animals, animal abuser. Gotta say, gotta careful. Yeah. Um. And in case you are wondering, it's a thing we promise. It's a thing we promise. Are you okay with car insurance? Uh, it's one of the reasons why I don't have a car is the money that I would have to spend to protect it and fuel it. It is one of the biggest reasons why I still do not drive. Car insurance sucks. My son has about an $8,000 car that he uh, bought on his own, and we can't afford to put collision on it. It's only got PLPD on it. Yeah. So if you rack it around a tree, screwed. So there's that. And then now there's this uh, shared responsibility, no fault insurance thing, where I had a guy back into me in January, and, you know, my... Um, my insurance company said, well, you're both responsible. I'm like, he backed out of a parking stall into me. I mean, the rules say safe, you know, departure from a parking stall. He backed out of the parking stall, backed into me. And they're like, yeah, but you're going to be responsible for your damages. It's no fault insurance now. 
And that's wild to me. Yeah. Now, it turns I, out yeah, wild. that uh, his car uh, was a little plastic car in minus 30 degree weather that exploded in the cold. And I just got mine fixed and it just had to be popped back in the clip. So it does pay to have a good car. Yeah, no, it's true. It really, and I think in theory, I, I understand if you don't have car insurance and you are at fault for damaging your car, you know, having to pay yourself to get it fixed, like that's fine. But th- I imagine that creates a lot of anxiety if you don't have the full insurance before you get in the wheel. You're like, I love my car. I want to drive my car. But what if I take a turn wrong or somebody backs into me like that? Like that anxiety is one of the biggest reasons why I do not drive, as despite the fact that I love cars. Yeah, I mean, the someone rear ends you or T-bones you, um, you fix your car, basically. So, I mean, it's it's terrible. The whole car insurance thing, as far as I'm concerned, is a scam. Uh, just my opinion, because, you know, they just decide what it is that they want to do. And they invest your money, and that's what happens, and, and uh, it's not good. Anyway, a woman just won a whole bunch of money from Geico after she successfully sued them. She sued them for getting an STD while having sex inside of a car owned by someone using Geico insurance. All right, let's break it down. The unidentified woman claims that she caught HPV while having sex with a man inside his 2014 Hyundai Genesis. The man only identified as MB was insured with Geico. The alleged incident happened back in 2017. The woman asked for $1 million, saying that the man knew he had the virus and the risks of unprotected sex. Last year, an arbitrator in a Missouri court determined that sex in the vehicle directly caused or directly contributed to that woman contracting HPV. The man was found liable as well. Geico pushed back, arguing that the man's policy only covered injuries related to maintenance or use of the car. And now Geico is ordered to pay again that woman $5.2 million in damages. Well, that would be use of the car. That part. Definitely using the car. Yeah. (sighs) Wait for the text jokes coming in about rear-ending or something. Um, that's from Queen City News. Geico is actually fighting the case in federal court now. Federal case is set for jury trial, which is currently slated to begin in Kansas City in October. The claims they hadn't been given a chance to defend itself, violating its constitutional rights and due process uh, against the courts. According to NPR and PPR, the two judges in Missouri court, um, uh, appeals the Western District said Geico had numerous chances to act on its own behalf. Uh, the woman said the company, a copy of the lawsuit, blah, blah, blah. And they said they didn't do anything. She also offered to settle it, but they did not respond. So there you go. Uh, what's, uh, what's Geico's slogan? 15 minutes could save you 15% on your car insurance. Something like that. Yeah. Yeah. I'm thinking mm. now might be five minutes could earn you $5 million off your car insurance. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, man. Well, and we got you covered, actually, would probably be helpful in this particular case. Yeah. With the STD. Are you okay with Nike? Ryan, are you okay with Nike? <laughs> I'm. Yeah, I'm pretty okay with Nike. I think, uh, I think they got a... They're kind of falling into a bit of a trap where they keep releasing the same shoes from the 80s over and over again with a different color. 
and they're kind of relying upon that. And I don't think they're innovating as well as other companies like Adidas and New Balance. So they got to kind of get their stuff together or they're going to fall behind on the market. But the thing is, those 80s and 90s sneakers are some of the best ever made. They're fun to style. Not the most comfortable, but um, yeah, I, I love my, I love my shoes. But speaking specific to Nike, yeah, I'd say so. New Balance has done a great job reinventing itself. Huge. Love it. So excited about everything they're doing. Just do it like the family guy. Nike. You may not notice, but our full name is Nigel. That's one of my favorite 10 seconds of Family Guy ever. It's that one line. Oh, that's pretty good. Nigel. Uh, Nike is a way of life for some people. It's generational, that's for sure. Some people even get tattoos of Nike shoes. But one Nike fan had an unconventional idea for a Nike tattoo. A man who was tired of paying to replace his worn-out shoes has decided to have his favorite no. Yes. Oh, What is this world coming to? Yes. Although creative. I'll give him points for creative. Okay. A man who is tired of paying to replace his worn-out shoes has decided to have his favorite pair of Nike trainers tattooed onto his feet. That would hurt. Wouldn't that hurt? That would hurt. Oh, it would hurt. Yeah, a lot. I don't know how you stay still. Yeah. Uh, He got some Nike dunks tattooed right to his toes, right to his feet, right there. Tattoo artist Dean Gunther created the art six months ago. He tattooed a six-pack. Onto somebody, like abs. Yeah, he tattooed abs onto someone. Like his whole thing is realism on imagery. It's actually quite impressive tattoo, but it looks objectively goofy. I will. I'm just grabbing a picture to put it on the Facebook page now. Thank you. The piece took Dean around two hours to draw, and another eight hours to tattoo onto both feet. He added, drawing the tattoo on my free hand was the most challenging part. I had to make sure everything flowed with the contours of the body. A stencil would not work in this case, so it's all freehand. The artist shared his creation on TikTok and Instagram, where it racked up more than 2 million views. Wow, seriously, that's a thing, huh? It's... it. Okay, so <laughs> I'm just looking at it now, and... Uh... <laughs> It just looks like he got the detail of this sneaker quite well. Like it's very well done, but it is the most off-putting thing I've ever seen on a human being. Like it just as a tattoo, it looks wrong. It's I think it's the toes for me. It's the toes. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thanks for listening to The Shift Podcast. Make sure you subscribe, rate, and review the show and share with anyone you like. Get it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and CuriousCast.ca.